The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. The Gilets Jaunes protests that have rattled cities like Paris and Bordeaux since late 2018 are starting to fizzle. But the fundamental inequities that fueled the Yellow Vest movement haven't gone away. I swung by the headquarters of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development on the leafy west side of Paris the other day to discuss these and other questions with Laurence Boone, the chief economist of the multilateral organization. She recently authored a report that highlighted one of the biggest problems of the French economy, low intergenerational mobility. Okay, so what's that mean? Well, basically, it takes more than six generations in France for a person at the very bottom end of income distribution to reach the mean. The French are just not moving up the ladder of prosperity fast enough. Education, according to Laurence, is the biggest culprit, but there are others. And of course, we didn't just talk about France, but with so many other potential risks to the economy, particularly here in Europe, to consider. We discussed the OECD's forecast for the Italian economy, which got the Italian government a bit excited, and we talked about Brexit. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. We also got to talk about at least one country that might be a model for everyone else, and that's Denmark. Okay, listen to my chat with Laurence Spoon of the OECD. Laurence, great. Thank you for having me here at the OECD. Thanks, Rob. Very nice to see you here. Um, so I wanted to uh, follow up with you. You and I had a conversation after you had put out this rather interesting blog post called France, Inequality in the Social Elevator. One of the things you pointed out in that piece was that it takes more than six generations in France for a person at the bottom end of income distribution to reach the mean, which is um, which is way more than it takes in many other European countries or OECD countries for that matter. Um, and it in some ways may help us to explain or to understand a bit what's happening with the Gilets Jaunes movement. How do you, how important is that to what we're seeing today happening in the, in, in France? No, I think you, you've pointed the finger on, on one of the most striking issue in France is there's a lot of redistribution from the top income earner to the poorest. So poverty after tax and transfer is quite low. But when you look at the middle of the distribution, what we see is that medium income earner or, or you know the forty percent below, they actually don't see a lot of distribution. And at the same time, when we look at how they perform throughout school and working life, then they've been struggling for a long time. If I just look at the average income of say below the median people, it has barely increased since twenty oh eight. Wow. I mean, so it's no surprise that people are taking to the streets. I think there are things we can understand about them going to the streets, and, and it, it has to do with the chances they have in life, and more than that, that the kids will have in life, which is what you were alluding to, and it starts very, very early in age. Like, for example, 60% of, of the kids actually go to a formal kind of care between the age of zero and two. But when we focus on the bottom 30% of the income distribution, then only 30% of the kids go into this care. So that means as soon as between zero and two, they miss some opportunity to socialize, to get excited by things in a formal way. Which then, affects their development, it affects their opportunities through the rest of their life is basically... It's exactly that. And then you will find that later in France, we have the one of the highest proportion of the youngster of 15 years old who have poor literacy and numeracy skills, one of the 
highest among the OECD, like 15% of them are struggling with numeracy and understanding. Mm. Um, and then obviously they have access to less qualified jobs and we have one of the highest proportion of people who are actually um, not having access to vocational training then in their working life and it's usually the less qualified and then you move and you go into unemployment and, and then it's also very difficult to have access to one of these qualifying training and then to get back in work and it's always the same population that's struggling to settle into the labor market. I mean, you wrote in the piece that the social elevator is broken and has been for some time. I mean, what you don't hear that necessarily as part of the 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 movement here. I mean, there is certainly there's there are a lot of arguments. There. I mean, actually, it's really hard to know what the yellow vest movement is about, right? It's quite disparate. It's kind of like a a giant um, um, pot into which everyone's thrown all their grievances. But is there anything specific um, that one could do, you know, to kind of rectify this in a way that would help? Um, that would help meet some of the demands or some of the concerns out there. So I think you're right. It's very, it's very diverse. I mean, it's a very diverse population as well. But still, it's if we had to try and qualify it, it it's a lot of people that are, you know, in the bottom sixty percent of the distribution, and they have not super qualified job, and their purchasing power has been has seen very moderate growth. So it's also, I think, those. A lot of people who are living outside rural areas and have seen access to public services, transport, healthcare, the post office, everything slowly disappearing. Um, and therefore, what, what, that, what that means, I think, is there are three types of answer. One is economic, one is about community, and the last is about empathy. On <laughs> economics, we know there's an element of redistribution and that works well, but there's essentially an element of actually getting into the labor market uh, and having qualifying uh, career and progress. Um, there's an element as well, which is the sense of community. It, if you walk around in the French countryside, you will see that in many, many places, plants have been closing down and once the manufacturing plant around these villages has closed down, then the Price office closes down, the flower shopkeeper closes down, and, and it goes like that. And it's super difficult to move actually for some of these people because your house is there, it's worth very little. Your friends are there, the community is here. And I think one of the demonstrations or, or, or the evidence provided by the Gilets Jaunes was this, this try for a sense of community that they wanted to regain. So um, for this, we have policies, you know, that consist in maintaining some of the rail rather than expanding expensive TGVs, which we may not need. Uh, it's, it's maintaining a territorial capacity and the ability of people to connect with each other. I'll tell you something. We've observed in some suburbs, for example, that when closing or, or suppressing the subsidies for association, Mm -hmm. then the sense of community disappears and criminality increases. Um, so this, this sense that we must connect to our neighborhood, I think is super important. Um, and the other one is empathy. I think one of the, one of the striking feature was that the people who were on the roundabout do not recognize themselves in our democratic institution. 
they want MPs who look like them, who had the same type of trajectory as they had, and who feel they can they can bring their voice to Paris and to where law is is being made. Um, and for this, we need people who are able to empathize yeah. with them as well. Yeah. Um, have you given your views? You worked in the government in your previous job. Um, do you think that they've that uh, the Macron government is hearing some of these recommendations? So from my previous experience, you're always very open to hearing what people have actually to tell you because it's very easy to get isolated in, in this castle uh, at the Elysee. So the more you listen and the more you try, you're, you're getting or you're staying in touch with people. Uh, and talking of these MPs are usually a very, very good way of testing the ground because they have direct link and Myos as well. And you've seen that during the debate, uh, the president has tried to reach out to Myos and to get back to the ground. This is the ground debate. This is where, where the president has gone off for, what, three months or some more and gone out and, and assembled people together. And I mean, it was kind of an amazing act of either, you know, if you talk the Gilets Jaunes, they call it political theater. I, I, it looks like political marathon to me to go out there and listen to people. But I mean, we haven't yet seen the fruits of that, of that uh, work yet, have we? Well, in a way you have, you've, you've seen it in two ways. The first one is the, the magnitude of demonstration, the number of people who were around us dramatically collapsed, right? That's it's, true. It's, uh, it's now a handful of irreductible uh, protesters. <laughs> um, so in a way, we've seen it as well. I think the response that was brought in December with a fiscal support for these people was also very well received because it was targeted to this part of the population. Now, looking ahead, he's supposed to deliver the results of this grand debate, and, and we'll see what happens with this. But, but if we talk about empathy, I think that was a great sign of, you know, extending your hand and, and trying to reach out to people. Um, the one thing that can be done further is obviously to use all the, the other stakeholders that are around. So that's the unions, that's the mayor, that's the MPs, that's the Senate people, because all of them have very local roots. And you need that for the for the words of the president to actually cascade. It's the transmission that. mechanism for... Totally. Yeah, and yeah. that has potential to be leveraged upon a little more than what has been done so far. Right. Um, of course, uh, you know, uh, anti-establishment uh, fever is not a, a French um, issue alone. I mean, we've seen it all around the world. And looking at, just going back to the intergenerational mobility, the thing that, which we started with, um, okay, France is uh, almost up there as, with Hungary, I guess, is the worst when it comes to social mobility. Um, but, you know, you see Germany is quite high on that list. Um, Italy, uh, the United States, Great Britain, uh, other places where Austria, where we're seeing, you know, we've seen populism of, in various forms crop up in places like Germany where we hadn't seen it for many, many years. Um, is, it, is, it a, is it indicative of the is this? Is it all the same problem? I think it's partly the same, and I think it also relates to um, to the perception of what's happened. You know, one of the reasons. Let me let me start with that. One of the reasons why we are seeing some kind of desertification of provinces and and how difficult it is if you're not in a urban area is due to the combination of trade openness and digitalization. Right. Mm. 
And all of them have the potential to actually move uh, activities, business activities outside of our traditional Western countries. And this is a phenomenon we saw in the US, the UK, Germany, everywhere in the Western world. Um, it's much easier to blame trade openness than it is to blame digitalization because at the same time we benefit a lot and it's less easy to see it with your own hands. A firms that close and you're being told that it's going to manufacture products somewhere in Asia now, that's concrete. So, and this has a lot to do, I think, with the populism. And then you can complain about it using digitalization. Exactly, <laughs> which is ironical. <laughs> You're yeah. right, um, but I think a lot, of, a lot of this has to do with that. Um, there are two things about this. One, I think economists have a responsibility in that because we've always claimed that trade openness it's good and digitalization as well, and it is good on aggregate. That's for sure. It lifted millions of people out of poverty in the emerging market. But we also know now, and there's been a lot more work over the past five to 10 years, I would say, that it leaves some population, some places, some provinces totally empty of economic activity. And what we also know now is that it's super difficult for the people who are left out to actually re-skill, re-qualify, find another job and move. We've always answered, oh, mobility is easy. But mobility is not mm. easy when when you are not a global elite with super qualification. Um, there are tools to address that, but if you take Europe, for example, we have a phone like in the US for addressing the victim between inverted comma of globalization, but it's like 500 million euro for the whole of the EU, which given right. the scale of the thing is perhaps a little small. Um, and that we need to develop a lot more policy tools to actually help those people. I mean, the one other response has been, of course, to, to even at government levels to sort of slow down uh, globalization or, or to try to make, I always think the M&A consolidation of you know, creating national champions is sort of is a sort of a consequence of that too, isn't it? Yes, you're right. So trying to slow globalization, I think, is an illusion because with digital, it will continue. So the best thing is to address digital um, this globalization and digital issue and bring people into the new world, help them. So you have two type of things, I think, for that. One is something we discussed together, which has which is the Denmark model, the Danish model, where you actually identify ex ante uh, the plants where something is happening because of global competition, this, the people who will be affected, the skills they have, how you need to reskill them, how you need to help them get back into the labor market. So that's prevention and it's very grounded um, at, the, at the micro level. And, and that's, not, that's not fighting globalization, saying it's going to happen, we need to be prepared for it. Yeah, and I, you're absolutely right. We need to prepare for it and accompany people. Let's make it less dramatic and make sure that they don't suffer from it. And the other, I think, has also to do with perception, and we were talking empathy before. Um, with digital, many firms can move their headquarters where taxes are low, where the regulation is much simpler, not to say that they can use some regulatory arbitrage. And for this, we have all these global institutions, one of which being the OECD, which is actually promoting you know, international form of taxation and harmonization and making sure that firms pay actually their taxes where they employ, they produce, and they sell. Uh, and that, I think, 
it might not be massive amount of money, but it's a very concrete response to a lot of people that they not only, I mean, the firms do not only benefit from globalization, but they also pay for it mm. and their fair share of taxes. Yeah. You mentioned Denmark. I mean, I was looking at, at also your table on intergenerational mobility. Uh, they seem to do best out of everyone. It says it takes uh, no more than two generations to reach the mean from the bottom of the of the of the of the totem pole. Um, what else have they done that's right? I think there's much less of a dual system in Denmark. If you in the traditional European countries and large one, if you look at it, you have the elite qualified people working usually for large firms being able to move around. And then you have those who have not super performed at school, and then they are less qualified, they work for less productive and profitable firms usually, so they get less benefits, and you get this divide between two worlds. That doesn't happen in Denmark. Now, what what's being done in Denmark cannot be reproduced elsewhere, it's so small, but it can give idea about the direction we should take, which is basically to do a lot more prevention and also a lot less ideological stuff. Um, right, right. And Norway, Sweden, and Finland are also sort of down there. I guess, you know, it's funny if you look in the States, uh, last October, the Council of Economic Advisors, which is the advisory group of the White House, came out with a very 75-page uh, report, which was talking about how, you know, socialism is creeping back, you know, on the two, whatever, 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth. Um, you know, there's a lot of cre- a lot of creeping in. And they tried through this thing t- to make the argument that, oh, actually, it's not, you know, the Nordic countries. It's not all it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, meant to be. It's uh, their living standards are lower. And um, they use some things like um, the price of a pickup truck in, in Denmark being really expensive. But, um, but, uh, but it's curious. I mean, it, it, having just visited Denmark, I don't get a sense that it's a socialist country. Actually, I find it very markets-friendly, uh, um, and I don't see a lot of state intervention. Frankly, I see more of it in France or Germany. Um, it doesn't seem socialist to me. Well, but it, it, all, it all begs the question of what do we call socialism? And if socialism is just putting a wealth tax, then you have very little socialist country around the world um, because we monitor that in our tax department. <laughs> um, I think the way we would characterize the Nordic countries, they're social liberal, which is quite different from being socialist. And that means they believe in free market economy, but they also believe in providing cushion and buffer to the people who are actually left out or have accidents in life. Mm. Uh, and to me, it's combining the best of both worlds. You actually encourage innovation, entrepreneurship, and, and freedom. And at the same time, you know that if something happens to you, then the state will be there, provide a safety net, and give you the second chance to start. Yeah. Um, and we are not, uh, France is not a socialist country. I think the, the objective of the government was actually to be social democrats, and we have big, big safety net in terms of income support, but we lack the safety net in terms of training, qualification, work support. Uh, and possibly we need a little simplification of our administrative burdens for firms as right. well. Right. Can we turn to, speaking of administrative burdens, Italy. Uh, you guys, the OECD, put out a p- report recently, which has gotten quite a bit of attention. Um, Luigi Di Maio, the, the deputy uh, prime minister, has, has has, has uh, gone and said some things about the OECD that weren't very pleasant. Um, 
one of the, the main features of the report, of course, was that you have a forecast for growth that is a little bit lower than the consensus. In fact, it suggests not growth. It suggests a 0.2% um, contraction in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, where is, how do you diagnose Italy's issues and problems and how can, it, how can actually they constructively um, move from a situation where we may have contraction to one of robust growth? So there, there are a few things, but let's look at short term versus long term. So the contraction is massively, the, it's already a fact. When you have minus 0.2, it's because the second half of 2018 was already into negative territory. Um, and so we are not, you know, it's not like if we have created in our projection a recession, it's, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing. The second, the second thing is the big, big problem of Italy is productivity and regional inequality. And in terms of productivity, it's something that's been there for decades um, now. And it has to do with a inefficient public service. That's true. It's cumbersome. It's, uh, you we're talking about burden, and I think it needs a lot of improvement. Uh, it has to do as well with the fact that a lot of young people are actually leaving Italy, so you lack you know, you start looking for qualified people and, uh, and it's difficult. Um, and it has also to do with the regional divide between the north and the south. The north is super efficient, has productive firms, they export, they employ highly qualified people. Whereas in the south, you will find an elevated rate of unemployment, poor infrastructure, um, and, and basically it's, it's a tale of two countries. So Lombardia is probably growing. Mm. You know, it admits it probably 2% or something. I mean, who knows what it is. Where is the South? I mean, Sicily, Naples, all those regions are, are in contraction. That's about it. And, and on top of this, part of it is also, uh, part of it is also, the you know, we must admit that Italy is also suffering from a deteriorating international environment. For example, the contraction in Turkey, which is much larger, is having an impact on the export of the Eurozone. The same with the slowdown in the UK, the same <laughs> with the slowdown um, in Germany and in its exports. So that, that also has an impact on Italy. Right. And what, what was your sense of the political response to, your, uh, to the OECD's report? So what's, what's somewhat ironical is an OECD report on a country is actually a consensus work with all OECD member states, including the country. So everybody has the opportunity to express their voice. And that's the first thing. So it's not, you know, it's not like it's my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a shared view. The second thing is um, we are in the business of actually advising uh, countries with the best policy advice we can do given our analysis of what everybody else in the OECD, every member state in doing. So we can look at Denmark, like we were saying, for one thing. We can look at another country for housing policy. We can take the example of another country which has really tackled poverty uh, and use it. So that's what we do. We just help, for example, the citizen income. We don't say it's a bad thing. Actually, we say it is good to have a tool that addresses poverty. But this, we know based on our experience and our analysis and models that there are better ways. So we offer solutions to actually improve mm-hmm. on what the government has put forward. Um, so it's not, 
again, it's I don't think it's a contradiction. We're trying to bring solution because there's nothing more annoying than somebody saying there's a problem without a solution. And it's a co-building work. Um, you cannot stop, you know, so the reaction is political. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about the substance of what no, we say. No, that's true. Uh, speaking of uh, exciting times, we are uh, going to get a sense of what the United Kingdom's future looks like, whether it's part of e the European Union or not. It certainly, it, it certainly has huge economic consequences, no matter what, uh, what, what form Brexit takes. How do you factor that into your views about uh, trade, growth, and sort of Europe's future? Yeah, so the, fir the first thing is, as you highlight, given the variety of possible outcome, um, what we base our projection and analysis on is the closest possible relationship between the EU and the UK. Um, partly because it's the most beneficial relationship, right? It's always better for a country to be seen as a hub to a 500 million market than a hub to a 60 billion mm -hmm. market of consumers. Um, but one thing which is very striking is if we want to be totally agnostic uh, on this, then we can look at what happened over the past two years in the UK. And there are two striking things. One is investment has stalled. Mm -hmm. It doesn't grow at all anymore. And that's a reflection of all businesses. You know, if you have the choice between investing in the UK or the continent, then it might look safer at this stage to invest on the continent if you want to have access to the single market. Right. Um, and the other thing which is very striking, so that's rough estimates, but if you look at the growth rate of, of the UK compared with that of, say, the US or Germany or France, so the countries most comparable to the UK, you can think that cumulated over the past two years, then there's about 2% less wealth created in the UK than there has been in these three countries. So we are seeing a loss of wealth um, for every single household in the UK that's actually significant. Which, if I, if I take that forward to me, is, you know, the sooner we get some certainty about what's happening, and the easier it will be for the UK to restart a normal life rather than a waiting for something. Like. Right, right. At least you know what it looks like. You can make your decision about whether you invest there or not. This, exactly. is, this sort of limbo is the worst thing of all. Um, putting all this together, I mean, where do you see, um, you know, we're going to have a new European Central Bank leader sometime in the next year. Uh, what, um, what will that person, what will she or he have at their disposal to deal with a recession with? Do they have any tools whatsoever? So I... The first thing is I don't think we should, we cannot afford to underestimate central banks um, because they've proven immensely creative and reactive in the wake of the global financial crisis. They're the one, and especially within the European institutional framework, they're the one authority that can act immediately to do something. Um, so right, I have they don't need 27 or 28 Emergency conceal, right, right, right. exactly. Um, so that the first point is, no matter what we think of where they are, they're there. Um, second one is, having said that, rates are super low. So effectively, they would have to be even more creative. But more than that, I don't think it's politically wise to actually make the central bank solely responsible for supporting the cyclical fluctuation of the eurozone economy. Um, we have other tools, and this other tool, the, the first one is fiscal policy. 
um, a number of countries in the Eurozone have some fiscal space, or put it differently, they have a quite low debt to the GDP ratio. And at the same time, they've got immense needs in terms of digital infrastructure. So you do one plus one equal two, and it's time that low public debt to GDP ratio countries with infrastructure, especially in digital uh, area needs, start spending some public money, for example, to equip the country with 5Gs or fiber of the satellite that gives access to telecommunication. If I push this further, the one thing that will be a fantastic weapon in the competition of the world tomorrow is data. So let's equip Europe with this infrastructure that allows us to collect data to a scale that's comparable to China or the US. Um, so I think it's urgent and they are, the institutions are in place and the framework is in place that the Eurozone country actually decide on what they can do with it. But you say with fisc who has fiscal room? I mean, I, can, I know Germany and the Netherlands and a few northern countries, but I mean, but we just exactly talked about that. Italy there, there, even France is... But that's exactly that. I think the northern European countries have fiscal rooms. We are not asking that they actually invest in the south, even so it would be a good idea when you look at the return. But even if they invest in their own country with this infrastructure, employ people, given you know the labor market is tight, they're going to employ uh, other countries' people. They're going to do public procurement to get the material open to the whole of Europe because that's the European law and the European market. So it's it will benefit everybody indirectly and them primarily. Uh, so it makes complete sense to start moving in that direction. Of course, if you're Germany, you're also sitting, as you mentioned before, they're a little bit worried about where the auto industry is going. And there's a little there's quite a bit of concern about um, both uh, both the um, you know, just the economic impact of the switch to electronic vehicles or the switch to automated driving and just a general sort of slowdown, um, asking them to, even though, so asking them to go and, you know, borrow money to invest. I mean, it, of course it makes sense. It's just that have they, what's, is there any willingness, do you think? Would there be willingness in a recessionary well, it's actually willingness because they've known some fiscal support to their economy, um, partly public investment and partly <clears throat> tax cuts. Tax cuts, we know the multiplier, so the impact on the economy is more uncertain than public spending. <coughs> and you cannot be sure that one year of tax cut is one year being spent, but even that, uh, even if it's half, is is better than nothing. And in terms of public investments, you were mentioning uh, autonomous car. How do we collect data for the autonomous car if we don't have the digital infrastructure in place? Right, so it goes so hand I in think, hand. Yeah, it's a question of survival today and tomorrow. But what about and the ECB? I mean, as you said, they've been enormously creative. But does that mean that, I mean, if they don't have any movement on rates, they can't, you can't really go even lower. I guess you can, but that's not necessarily wise. What do you buy stocks? My <laughs> advice is that the ECB should stay on hold. That's what we've been saying. Should remain accommodative, not move, provide you know the, the the base on which the governments can act. Governments, she, the ECB has created fiscal space <laughs> for the government. Let them use it. And politically, I think the burden of again stabilizing the economy should be shared by governments and the ECB. It's not healthy to put too much weight on them. So my advice is the ECB stand still and unless there's something enormous that happens and government get your act together and you know use the euro framework to actually stimulate the economy. And what you do today 
is, is also preparing the future. Well, on that note, thank you, Laurence. I appreciate you hosting me here at the OECD. Thank you, Robbie. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and a bientôt.